Parenting for me is one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. I feel like it's the most rewarding job on earth. It's also the most challenging. Every single child, every single teenager, every single one of us has a need to be seen first and foremost by our Heavenly Father. But we also have a need to feel seen by those that we love and those that we do life with. Well, good morning, community Lincoln Park. Uh, First off, let me just get the elephant out of the room. I'm a little nasally, apologies about that. Feel free to not shake my hand, even though I promise it's been done a few days. I've got a cough drop, I'm all day-quilled up, uh, hopefully not contagious, but keep your distance if you're worried. Um, As Derek just said, I just wanna give one last tag on encouragement. I actually had the chance this last week to talk through a Zoom to Damian Howard, who works for Together Chicago. He was on a call with me and Principal Davis over at Meniere Elementary. Uh, We want to build a partnership with Meniere. So if you know anything about Meniere, it's right over near Cabrini Green. Uh, Last I checked, the demographics of Meniere are 99% African-American students, uh, which just means it's one of these weird pockets in the Chicago Public School District that is hugely under-resourced. It's serving this uh, community that really needs more love and investment, and yet it's kind of isolated and been tucked out of the way that CPS is trying to integrate schools on the north side of Chicago. So we are really passionate about showing up and being the church for Muneer. Uh, We're not just gonna serve them today, we're serving them again in June. We wanna serve them again in the fall as their students are coming back. So we are very excited about this. I'm excited about this. I was telling uh, those, our volunteers before the service that Principal Davis and Damian Howard kept referring to me as pastor the whole call and it felt great. Uh, So feel free, if you wanna start calling me pastor too, that's great. Uh, it's not really our culture, but I loved it. Um, but just, just an encouragement. If you have any time, we would love for you to join us over at Meniere. Come talk to me. Talk to Bailey Mounts, who's been incredible at setting all of this up after the service. Uh, we'll be right over there and would love to talk to you. With that said, uh, we're diving in this morning to week three of U Plus Parenting. So here's how the logic has gone in this series, just so you're tracking with us. We uh, looked at some Barna research that indicated when it comes to millennials right now, not just Christian millennials, but any millennials, their highest value, more than career success, more than making money, more than even finding love and marriage, the highest value reported among millennials is the question, how do I become a good parent? How do I become a good parent? That is something that millennials are asking, something that millennials are wrestling with. As a parent myself, I am wrestling with this question. It is overwhelming for any of you who have had kids to just be thrown into the middle of this incredibly important task. And yet the the problem right now for millennials and even looking past millennials at Gen Z is this graph that I'm gonna throw up on the screen. I shared this last week. A picture paints a thousand words and American sociologists are a little bit confused because uh, the birth rate in the US is significantly down. It's been down for a while now. Normally the birth rate sort of ebbs and flows following economic crashes and booms, and you can kind of see some of the trends going on here. But since the year 2007, which incidentally, I'm just gonna give you my hand and indicate what I think is going on. Since uh, Facebook and social media started showing up on things that we call smartphones, uh, the birth rate has been sort of nosediving And currently, uh, some estimates have millennials at 0.5 kids per couple, uh, which is the lowest birth rate that Americans have seen in a really long time, has a ton of huge implications. 
Now, the reason why I think this is significant for us is this next slide. As we tried to figure out what would it mean for us to offer a series on you plus parenting, a parenting series that helps you figure out how you can invite your children or your future children or even just how you can parent yourself into this you plus life of flourishing God has for you, one of the greatest obstacles we immediately hit is mental health. Uh, currently, if the birth rate is down as one interesting sociological trend, uh, the other huge trend everyone's talking about in terms of sociology circles is how bad our mental health has gotten and is still getting worse. So these stats uh, are drawn from the last two years, especially right now, uh, Gen Z teenagers to those in their early 20s. One in two report having experienced depression in the last six months. One in four report having a diagnosis of a mental disorder in the past two years. And then maybe most significantly, one in seven Gen Z adults who are in the workforce right now uh, in this big study by McKinsey reported contemplating suicide in the last year. Just think about that for a minute. If you know any Gen Z 20-something adults, one in seven contemplated suicide in this past year. Now, here's what's really challenging uh, and why I'm grateful Marissa and then Derek mentioned to you. I just want to also mention it to you as well. Uh, suicide is very difficult to talk about. Suicide is difficult because if you've struggled with suicidal ideation, there can be a lot of shame, a lot of sort of isolation. You don't want to talk about it. If you know somebody who has either attempted suicide or who has committed suicide, it can just feel really overwhelming. There's all this guilt and loss and shame and confusion around what to make of all of it. And so we do just want to be really gentle as we step into this conversation. Uh, and we do want to invite you, if this does get overwhelming or this gets heavy, not only can you come talk to me, we're going to have prayer after this message, uh, but we'd love to invite you even to just step out if you need it. There's no pressure, no shame. You can just catch your breath for a moment. Um, but here's the challenge when it comes to addressing this huge increase in suicidal ideation and despair that's taking place, particularly among teenagers and young adults. The church has often struggled uh, because sometimes, if you've ever been in the church, as this topic comes up, sometimes the church can try to fix things a little too quickly. Like we kind of rush to pat answers and kind of give you a like pep talk and try to send you out the door. And that doesn't really hold all of the complexity of what's going on, even with mental health and psychology. And yet on the flip end, uh, if we just do sort of psychology and mental health for you, uh, there can be moments in the church or in Christian circles where it kind of feels like we're just trying to be psychologists when like I'm not professionally trained as a psychologist, I can't quite give you full psychological care and treatment. So somewhere between the middle here at Community, we thought it would be wonderful if we could actually bring in a psychologist who knows what they're talking about to give us some wisdom around what it looks like to handle uh, the heaviness of what she calls despair in youth and teens. And I just want to acknowledge some of you don't have kids. Uh, for some of you, you may not be thinking about kids. It's totally okay. Uh, but just want to encourage you as we're about to share this interview clip with the psychologist, Dr. Chinway Williams, go ahead and ponder the, the tools she's offering to you as tools that you might one day need yourself, uh, perhaps you even need right now, or tools especially that could be offered to your friends, to your peers, to your neighbors, to those who are living in the same apartment with you. 
So uh, we wanted to bring in a psychologist, but we didn't want to just leave it there. I want to conclude after about an eight-minute interview with Dr. Chinway Williams, I want to take you to a text and be able to explore with you what G difference Jesus can make in addition to these psychological tools to how we parent our children or even how we ourselves navigate the despair you may be feeling this very Sunday. So uh, I want to show you two books that our upcoming interviewee has written. This is Dr. Chinway Williams. She is a national leader in working with kids and adolescents. Her book, Seen, especially talks about this topic of despair. How do you help children, teenagers, young adults who are navigating despair? And our lead pastor, Dave Ferguson, had a chance to ask her for some tools, very practically, of how we can enter in as a community if there's someone you know or you yourself are currently wrestling with despair. So let's go ahead and watch this interview. Welcome back, Dr. Chenwei. Um, so good to have you here. And um, I'm gonna ask you this, because. A lot of times we use the term anxiety or depression, but I noticed in your book that you use the term despair. And I'm really curious, now, why did you choose despair? Um, what is despair? And how do we recognize it in our kids? We chose the word despair because, Dave, I don't know if you would agree with this, but most people would not relate to having major depression. Most people would not relate to having an anxiety disorder but most of us can say that we have had a moment, a season in our life where we've experienced despair, which we define as hopelessness, looking out toward the horizon and everything is dark, everything is bleak, and you have no hope that the sun is gonna come out. And from a psychological perspective, it really speaks to from a brain-based perspective, how two sides of the brain, the logical side and the emotional side are just not connected. And there's one uh, psychologist that calls that the despairing of the brain. The other thing I thought found so interesting you write about is you write a lot about how the brain works. So what's going on in a child or student's brain when they're battling despair? There is a hormone um, called cortisol. Okay. that's known as the stress hormone. And it's there to keep us safe. It's there to prepare us to battle that saber-toothed tiger, right? Or anything that is perceived as a threat. So that can be a threat that's real, like a car kind of swerving into our lane. But it could also be a threat that's perceived for a child that's a social threat, like not feeling included, not feeling a sense of belonging, not feeling seen. And so a long period of stress, regardless of the type of stress, is problematic because that is actually what causes the despairing. And so for, again, a child or an adult that's experiencing that despairing, it's a tough place to be because you're not able to really put words or language to what it is that you're feeling because you aren't able to access it. You're feeling all of these big emotions because blood flow is actually being channeled to the right side of the brain. So there's a lot of excess energy on the right side of the brain, which is actually causing logical processing to decrease. Okay, so understanding that that's what's going on, yeah, at an emotional level, but also at a phys physiological level, I mean, now that we understand, how does that help us help our children or student? So what I propose to parents based on what we know from neuroscience, and this is what I do with my own kids, is to meet them, your child, your student, your spouse, right brain to right brain. So instead of saying you shouldn't feel this way, we live in a beautiful home, 
You go to a beautiful church. You have all these people that love you. Instead, you say, this has got to feel really hard for you, even if you don't understand it, mm -hmm. because you may be wired much more logically or as a logical processor. But if your child is activated um, on the emotional side, the best thing to do is to meet them where they are, ask them to you know, share what they're feeling, repeat an emotion that maybe they've said, or you might be, you know, you're thinking that they might be experiencing, and then asking how you can support them. And something else that helps to decrease that right brain activation is what we're doing right now, Dave, connecting, mm. having gentle eye contact, right? Lowering your voice and even touch, physical touch. If your child or your spouse is open to that, yeah. that actually helps to reduce that excessive energy on the right side of the brain. And it can flip the processing to the logical side. You actually talk about several different tools, several different kind of real practical tools that as parents, as adults, people who love, you know, children and students that can really bring hope into what's sometimes a dark world. Would you talk about those? And if you would, because I think you have five of them. Yes. And they were, when I saw them, they were super helpful. I'd love for you just to highlight each of those, those five tools. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about showing up in yes. our last conversation. So super important. If you remember nothing else, um, please remember that because all of the other connection tools hinge on you showing up. So once you show up, you see them. And seeing them means looking beyond the emotion that your child or your student is expressing in that moment. This is really tough, Dave, because they could be expressing emotions or words that feel disrespectful to you as a parent or a leader. Uh, but if you're noticing, especially if you're noticing other signs that they just seem off, pausing for a moment, looking beyond the behavior to see the emotion that may be driving the behavior, especially for our teenagers, because at 15 and 16, they are making really big life choices and they need us there, right? But we have to kind of see past the uh, defensiveness. And so the third tool is to just listen. It seems probably too small to matter, but you know it, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. It, it's huge. 80% of communication is nonverbal. Mm -hmm. And what gets in the way of effective, healthy communication is we, and I'm guilty of this, we as parents and leaders trying to inject logic, <laughs> trying to um, offer a different point of view. Those things are important, but it can't happen too quickly. We really need to listen to our kids. And I've got three really powerful words. Yes. Um, this is free. This is a pro tip. All right, let's uh, That will help you to help your child to continue talking because the just listen tool is supposed to have them to keep talking so they emotionally exhale. And those three powerful words, tell me more. Okay. Yeah, so that's just listen. Okay. And so the fourth tool is to speak life. Really, really important. You know, the, you know, the power of words, right? Words can lift up and words can tear down. So we wanna be really mindful of the words that we speak to our kids, especially when we're activated by their behavior that's off-putting, um, but also in particular, especially working with teenagers now for almost two decades, they're getting a lot of information. They're being told who they are, who they aren't, who they should be. They're waking up in the morning 
really questioning so much of who they are. And part of that is adolescence. And then part of that is the shift in our culture. So I always say to parents and leaders, you can't love your kids enough. You can't validate them enough. And validation does not mean that you agree with every single thing that they say. So we speak life. We let them know that we're proud of them. We let them know that it's not just about the outcome, but it's the effort that they're putting into not just academics, not just sports, but also their self-care. And then the fifth and final tool, because it's all about logical processing at the end of the day, is to develop grit. And we do that by helping our students to learn coping skills that will help them to kind of challenge those negative thoughts that come up to help them to manage the anxiety that they're experiencing. So grit isn't just being tough for the sake of being tough, is being able to use coping strategies that will help them to face all of the challenges that the world inevitably will bring. Thanks so much for uh, the difference you're making in our community. Uh, thanks so much for the difference you're making in the lives of children and students and families and um, for you fulfilling your calling. We're really grateful for you. Thank you so much, Pastor Dave. It's helpful, isn't it, to just have a couple concrete tools to engage somebody either in your life, a child, uh, somebody you care about, or even just a friend who you notice is really struggling. Um, I, I am drawn, though, to ask kind of where, where the Bible enters in here, where Jesus speaks into this, how Jesus comes alongside these really helpful tools. And so if you're willing, I wanted to dive with you into a scriptural story that I think has a surprising amount to say about this sort of culture of despair that we found ourselves swimming in. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we're gonna have it up on screen, which is great. Um, as we enter into this story, you've possibly heard it before. Um, I just wanna draw your attention to how despair is more prevalent than you might think. Uh, we are not the first to wrestle with despair and often death a moment of sickness that leads to death can be something that really triggers this cloud of despair. So we find the story in John chapter 11. I'll go ahead and read these opening verses to you. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, what's interesting about this story is you've got these two sisters, Mary and Martha, which if you're familiar with the New Testament, show up a lot in Jesus' life. You've got their brother, Lazarus. Now, some scholars think, as we've asked, you know, where did this relationship with Jesus develop? Jesus seems to be really close to these sisters, especially, and to Lazarus. Uh, some scholars have suggested that they possibly grew up in Nazareth together. Isn't that kind of fun to think about? That uh, it's possible these were childhood friends of Jesus, but even if they weren't, Clearly, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are deep, close friends of Jesus. They show up all the time. They're at the most important moments of Jesus' life and ministry. And so Lazarus, their brother, friend of Jesus, gets sick, and they send word to Jesus, Jesus, surely this is something you're going to care about. Lord, that one you love is sick. Now, here's where this story gets really interesting. This is verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Okay, that's kind of strange. Uh, verse five says, Jesus 
loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Okay, so this, this little chunk of the story is riddled with what seems to be apparent contradictions to us, right? As we think about what it would be like to live through this moment, this experience. We're told very clearly by John, the one narrating this story, Jesus loves Martha. He loves Mary. He loves Lazarus. In fact, he hears Lazarus is sick and he says, this sickness is going to result in God's glory. Something incredible is going to be a result of the sickness that is currently in Lazarus. Yet, when he hears it, he waits, right? Jesus, the one who performs miracles. Jesus, the one who has the power of God, who we know can heal sicknesses and diseases. Jesus, the friend of Lazarus, waits for two whole days until he turns to his disciples and says, it is time, let us go back to Judea. Now, I want to notice in this waiting of Jesus, uh, there's two despairs I want to draw your attention to in this story. The first despair, I think, comes out of this moment is the despair of timing. The despair of timing. What we're going to discover in just a moment is that Jesus' waiting means that Lazarus is going to die. The waiting of Jesus is going to result in what we're just about to find out, that Lazarus is in fact dead. Now, this, is, this for us becomes a huge crisis of faith because time and time again, despair settles in because some kind of timing has not gone the way we hoped, right? Normally, timing has something to do either with something not happening fast enough So it's like, God, I really need a new job in order to feel better. God, I'm really waiting on someone to show up so that I can fall in love and get married to them. God, I really want to have a child. God, I really want my children to stop rebelling against me, right? Something is not happening that we are waiting for. Or the opposite may be true. Sometimes despair can happen when something crashes into our lives that we really wished had not shown up at all. Uh, So this can often be a sickness that suddenly shows up. It can be a diagnosis we were not hoping for and did not want. It can be the news that someone close to us that we thought was just always going to be a stable presence in our life has actually passed quickly and unexpectedly. Timing is often what causes us despair. And yet we discover in this story that Jesus intentionally waits in this moment because Jesus sees the potential for something greater to happen. This almost makes no sense. How could any suffering result in something greater? Well, we have to believe as we sit with Jesus in this moment that Jesus sees timing in a way that we don't. And here's really the first disruption or challenge that Jesus offers to our despair Gently, I think, this story is asking us, are we really the ones who should be in control of the timing of our lives? Like as you look back at that anxiety, that pressure, that like, I really need this right now, or Lord, I never needed this to happen to me. There's, a, there's sort of an interesting deep question, right? Like, did you see the full picture when you felt all of that rush of despair? Are, are you the one who, who truly should control every aspect of your life? Can, can you see all of it? Or 
Or is there, is there someone else worth trusting the timing of our lives to? Let's continue with the story. I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit to verse 17, where upon his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, I want to pause here for just a second. Uh, what's interesting about this one verse, uh, in the Gospel of John, John is an, this incredibly artistic writer, and he's very subtle. So you have to sort of slow down and pay attention sometimes to make sure you catch everything John is saying. What John wants us to consider or realize in the ancient world is that it would have taken about a day for a messenger to leave Lazarus's bedside to go find Jesus with the news, hey, Lazarus is sick. And then by the time Jesus waits two days, it would have taken Jesus another day to get down from where he was in Galilee to Bethany so that he could be next to Lazarus. And so what we discover is that likely Lazarus died as soon as the messenger left and there was no way Jesus rushing to his bed would have prevented the sickness from getting worse, right? So already we find, interestingly, that Jesus, Jesus couldn't have prevented this, right? Jesus couldn't have stopped it. Jesus knew uh, this sickness was happening. Perhaps Jesus knew that he already had died. Yet now that Jesus is here, what is Jesus going to do? We're told Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, two miles, if you think about it, is just a 40-minute walk. It's not very far from Jerusalem to where Lazarus is. And so many Jewish people had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. In fact, most scholars think this family of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha was probably a prominent family, may have been connected to politics, to the temple, to the priesthood. And so a lot of people have shown up. This is a big political deal. Lazarus is dead, and tons of people have come to help the family mourn. Now, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Okay, Martha and Mary are really interesting to pay attention to in this story because both despair, but despair in different ways. So Martha despairs and she rushes to have what we'll discover in a second is a confrontation with Jesus. Like she is rushing to be like, hey, something went wrong and you should have done something about it. Mary despairs and she leans out to avoid a confrontation with Jesus. She kind of wants to stay just needs to wait this out. She's sitting in her grief. So let's jump to the next verse. As Martha goes to meet Jesus, Martha's going to say this, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Now, this is the second despair. I just want to draw your attention to in the story. If the first one is the despair of timing, the second despair is the despair of accusation. The despair of accusation. I think if most of our despair conjures up this like desire to control the timing of our lives, the other thing despair often does is that we start wildly hurling accusations and normally they come out at the people who are closest to us, who actually have the best chance at caring for us. And yet in our accusations, it's like we just can't help but turn on that person who's close to us and hurl this dagger into their heart. And what Martha says is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I am haunted by this verse because we could probably, if you search your own life, replace 
my brother would not have died with any of our own deepest sufferings and traumas, right? Lord, if you had been here, then my mom would never have been diagnosed with cancer. Lord, if you had been here, I never would have lost that job. Lord, if you had been here, I never would have suffered that betrayal and fallout and desperation of broken relationships across my life. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, at this point, there's a lot of despair in this story. There's a lot of despair. Jesus is going to respond to Martha. If we had more time, I'd sit with his response, but he's, he's gonna point her to the resurrection, but it's sort of a half step, and so I wanna jump ahead to point out to you that he doesn't just get this accusation from Martha. Jesus, as our suffering savior, gets another accusation from Martha's sister, Mary. So let's look at the next passage. After Martha interacts with Jesus, she goes back and calls her sister, Mary, aside. She says, the teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, I just, I do love Jesus for this, and I do want to draw your attention to this. Uh, Jesus, when we start to despair, comes and meets those of us who are looking for him. Knowing the accusations are coming, Jesus comes and he meets Martha. But notice, even those of us in our despair who avoid Jesus, Jesus goes looking for. Don't you love that Martha shows up with Mary, Mary who's avoidant, Mary who's sitting in her grief, Mary who's delayed, Martha says, Mary, Jesus is asking for you. Mary, Jesus wants to talk to you. Now look what Mary does to Jesus. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now here's, here's just the last thing I wanna point out about the despair of accusations. What's so tough here is that the accusation in a sense, on the surface, rings true, right? The accusation always feels true when we turn to God and we say something like, if you were a good God, you would never have let this thing happen to me. It always feels true. But the problem is underneath this accusation, I mean, if you really sit with Mary and Martha and what they're saying, essentially, though Jesus couldn't have prevented Lazarus from dying, he, he was already going to die, Jesus knew this, uh, essentially, underneath this accusation is this demand that God somehow protects, somehow cushions, somehow prevents any kind of suffering from entering into our lives. Like, imagine for just a second if Jesus' response was, you're right, I, I, I should have been there. Or if Jesus somehow was there, Jesus rushes right to Lazarus' side, Lazarus is sick, Jesus says, Lazarus, it's okay, get up, you're not sick anymore. Mary and Martha cheer, everybody's like, Jesus is amazing, this feels great, we love life. And then a couple years come by, and then Lazarus gets sick again. What, what do Mary and Martha think Jesus should be doing? Like, is Jesus just supposed to be there by Lazarus' bedside the whole time, like, just waiting for sickness so that he can keep bringing him back to life. Is that actually what we want? And yet, as silly as that sounds, for many of us, this is the great struggle of suffering in our relationship with God. This is the great challenge to our despair. Something has gone wrong. But essentially, the question is, 
Are, do we really think God's sole role is to somehow like cushion and like prevent, sort of knock away all of the brokenness, all of the just filth that is surrounding us in this world? I mean, on some level, there's no easy answer to these kinds of accusations. These are questions that essentially can't be answered. And yet, gently, gently, it's just worth asking, is this a fair accusation to lay at Jesus' feet? However, even if that's true, look at how Jesus responds. Uh, this now is verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus says, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And as Jesus approaches the site of the tomb, we are told the two most powerful words in the New Testament. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Um, the early church uh, who assumed God could never feel emotions was swept away by this verse in particular. In fact, there are, if you think about it, two moments, two moments in the New Testament where Jesus weeps. Uh, one moment of weeping actually takes place at the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is going to die. And we're told that Jesus is contemplating his coming execution. He's contemplating the suffering that he's about to endure. He recognizes this suffering is going to carry with it the whole weight of sin and condemnation from the entire existence of humanity on his body. And he is so stressed by the suffering that he begins to cry these tears that actually are filled with blood. Jesus weeps with his own suffering. Jesus has felt the enormity of suffering that the human life has to place on him. And yet, perhaps, if I could be so bold, I am more moved by these tears when Jesus is moved to weep, not just for his own suffering, but just to see the weight of despair that has settled around him. It's like Jesus is holding the cost of death and the brokenness and the pain that every intrusive death brings into this world, whether you have a loved one who simply passes in old age or whether you have a loved one who passes at far too young an age. Jesus stands there and when he sees it, he's moved and he's troubled and he weeps. This is the first response to our despair, I think, which is the hope of Jesus's tears. What Jesus's tears tell us in our despair is that we are not actually alone. Jesus holds all accusations. Jesus understands our disappointment around timing. And when Jesus sees how profoundly distressed you are, Jesus is not gonna attempt to logic you out He's not going to attempt to answer all of your questions. Instead, the most likely thing Jesus is going to do is he's just going to weep with you. However, this is not the end of this beautiful story as Jesus attempts to give us hope. Um, I'm kind of moved just to point this out. I found this fascinating as I was sitting with the passage. Immediately after Jesus weeps, 
we get these two other verses. Again, I think this is John's artistry in telling the story. Uh, two responses to Jesus' tears. You'd think upon seeing Jesus weep, like everyone would just lift up a hallelujah that the Son of God is feeling with us. Instead, there's deep cynicism in the crowd. We're told they miss it in two ways. First, some Jews said, see how he loved him, Lazarus. Like, oh no, Jesus is despairing too. Like, he's so sad. No, no, that misses the point, right? Jesus isn't weeping for Lazarus. Jesus is weeping for Mary and for Martha and for the crown that is mourning around Lazarus with no hope. But the other one is an even better cynicism, if you will. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They're still accusing him, right? They're still like, ah, throw another accusation on the pile. He could have done better. You know, he's just standing over here crying. That's pretty useless. Who needs a God who cries? He should have prevented him from dying. Little do these crowd members know what is about to happen. So uh, to take you to the end of this story, again, you know where this is going, but just sitting in it moves me every time. Told in verse 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I mean, this picture is worth another thousand words. Here, the stone is the symbol of death. The stone is the thing that prevents us. The stone is whatever obstacle you are holding in your despair that's like, God could never fix this, right? Most people are driven to suicide because there's something that they think can never change in their life. They feel utter despair that this obstacle is the end of themselves. This stone means Lazarus is never being accessed again. His life is done. In fact, his life stinks. <laughs> Death stinks. There's a smell in there. Jesus, you don't want to get into the mess of what's behind my despair. You don't want to actually have to face this gross stench of death that has been building because of his sickness. Jesus says, did I not tell you that God's glory was going to take place here? So we're told they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, this is kind of a funny prayer, but I love that what I hear Jesus saying in this, what I think we need to hear Jesus saying in this, is Jesus saying, I have been sent for your despair. I have been sent to you. These tears are for you. My presence is for you. And what I'm about to do is the whole point of why I've come for you and for your despair. And with that, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. We're told the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, the last image of this sign is that when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, Lazarus, the one who was dead, is now walking out in new life. Uh, we're told he still has these dead clothes, these strips 
of linen that not only probably did stink, uh, but that also kind of were like binding him. This is almost a funny scene. Like it is zombie Lazarus slash like confused Lazarus. Like what was going through Lazarus's head as he's trying to like walk out. And yet the power of what Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. There's two verbs here. The first one is the verb unbind him. Quite literally, free him, free him. And then the last word, let him go, release him is a forgiveness word. It's the same word that'll be used throughout the New Testament for forgive him, release him. He's freed. This is our second hope. And this, dare I say, friends, if this does not give you some comfort, there's nothing else that Christianity has to offer you. This is the hope of resurrection. This is the insistence of Jesus that as we face true despair, as you wrestle through genuine suffering, the story takes nothing away from the deep distress that has been caused by an unexpected sickness that led to far too quick a death. Jesus says there is a sign for you, two signs actually, that I wanna offer you in this story that are at the heart of what the Christian message is. Quite simply, I first offer you my tears. I am with you in your suffering. I know the weight of what you carry. I want to, as Dr. Chinway Williams said, lower my voice. I want to get close. I want to put a hand on your shoulder. And I want you to know with my tears that you are not alone. And yet, Jesus does not stop there. Instead, Jesus says, I'm going to perform a sign of what I soon will do in my own body, which is the sign of what we celebrate every Sunday here at the communion table. And this is the sign that even in the midst of your despair, and listen, I get it, it's, it's real, it's heavy, and there are real consequences and stakes as we wrestle with suicidal ideation, as we think about having kids, as we navigate the mental health pressures of our culture in this moment, yet Jesus disrupts the whole paradigm by saying, what if death is not the end? What if this stone is not the final obstacle? What if you too, one day, will hear my voice and I will call out to you, unbind and release them as you walk into the newness of resurrection life that Jesus has for you? Let me pray over us. Jesus, I first lift up any here who are themselves currently struggling, who just feel off, who maybe have been holding depression, who have gone through a major life disruption, be it a sickness, a diagnosis, a lost job, a medical strain, a broken relationship. Lord, I pray this morning, this table that we're about to share together would remind them that first you weep, next you give us hope. Lord, I also want to lift up those of us who are carrying friends, family members, loved ones, even just acquaintances, Lord, who are struggling, perhaps even with suicidal thoughts. Lord, as Dr. Chinway Williams taught us, could we model what you've done for us? Could we be present? Could we show up? Could we listen? Could we speak life? 
we develop grit together as a community, Lord. We pray that not one sheep would be lost, that our love would model your love, and yet, Lord, yet in the midst of that whole struggle, we cling to this sign of Lazarus, that you will free all of us who trust in your name from death itself. With that prayer, Lord, we come now to your table. Amen.